that's in there. Father Gordon Walker is the pastor emeritus of St. Ignatius Orthodox Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where he lives with his wife, Mary Sue. He has a lifetime of ministry as an evangelist, preacher, and Orthodox priest, and now works with the Department of Missions and Evangelism for the Antiochian Archdiocese. Father Gordon is well known as an eloquent and learned teacher of the New Testament. Now the mistake in there is that he retired officially two weeks ago from the Department of Missions Evangelism. So what's he doing here teaching, you might ask? I won't answer that. I'll leave that to him and Mary Sue to figure out, except that I do know they get to take a cruise home. So uh, there's it's some retirement part in there. So Father Gordon. Father Mark, it, it is a real special joy for Mary Sue and me to be with you. It was actually 12 years ago that we came when, when you had the AUM meeting here and we, uh, we went to the Fur Rendezvous. Uh, and that was a great experience. And uh, my wife, is, uh, she had... Uh, extracted a promise from me after I'd been up here, I think, three times before that, uh, that if I ever went to Alaska again, she wanted to go. And I, so when the opportunity came for that AEOM meeting, I said, okay, you can go with me this time. And so we had a marvelous time. We especially enjoyed going down to see the dog sleds and races and so forth. And we enjoyed seeing Tom Webster knocked three, uh, about a foot and a half of snow off of his Weber and grilling salmon out uh, with the snow falling. You know, it was only in Alaska do you get to see things like that. And uh, we saw lots of things. Had, in fact, it, there was a foot of snow on the ground when we landed and three feet on the ground when we left uh, after that week. But it was a great experience, and we've never forgotten it. We've, she and I have talked about it many, many times since then. And so when Father Mark invited me to come and be here at the same time with Father Peter, uh, I was extremely happy to say yes to that and uh, counted it a, a real privilege to be in this beloved church again. Uh, I've always been an admirer of the work that his father, Father Harold, did, and now that he has done for these years, and to see this beautiful uh, property and community here. So uh, it, it uh, brings a special joy to us to be here. Now, with respect to uh, some of the things that we're going to be attempting to do here, uh, the truth is, my wife was very skeptical when she saw that I was speaking four times and going to cover the whole book of Romans. And she said, it'll never happen. She's probably right. She knows me quite well. She's, uh, she's heard me teach out of Romans several times. And uh, it is impossible to cover the whole book of Romans but what we, in, in these sessions. But what we will do is we'll make a valiant effort to cover as much as we can. Now, there's one requirement. Uh, you don't have to give me an offering. I might pay you to come, but 
I do require that you get an Orthodox study Bible sooner or later if you don't already. How many have Orthodox study Bibles? Oh, that's good. That's better than I expected. Uh, Father, you've done a real good job here uh, brainwashing, I mean indoctrinating the people. And, uh, you know, uh, this is a wonderful uh, Bible. I only had a small part in the, in the New Testament. I'm doing a, little, a good bit more work for the Old Testament that's uh, in, in the process right now. And in less than two years, God willing, it will be uh, ready, or in about two years, it will be ready to go on the market. And uh, we're praying that there will be no glitches to that. Pray that Father Jack will stay healthy because without him, it would be real hard for us to ever get it finished, I think, next to impossible. But uh, I, I'm extremely excited about the whole Old and New Testament, including the so-called Apocrypha. By the way, the church fathers never made a distinction when they quoted from the, the Apocryphal books and what we call the uh, canonical books of the Old Testament. They just quoted... Uh, from both sets as though there were no distinction at all. And I have found that especially true in the book of Sirach, which I'm working on. And you will find uh, these quotes out of the early church fathers quoting Sirach equally as much as they do from uh, Isaiah or from the Pentateuch or any other parts of the Old Testament. And the, it was, the book of Sirach was nicknamed Ecclesiasticus, which means church book. And the reason it got that nickname in the fourth century is that the church loved that book so much. And it appears to me now, after having spent a long time working on this, that the Lord Jesus Christ quoted as much from or more from Sirach and paraphrased as much or more from it than any other book of the Old Testament. And yet those of us from a Protestant background lost track of these books because in, in the 1830s uh, they stopped publishing uh, the, the first the British Foreign Bible Society and then the American Bible Society stopped publishing Bibles with the Apocrypha in them. And so therefore we are now, uh, we who were raised in those Bibles uh, never knew anything about the book of Sirach or any of the other of the apocryphal books. So we have a lot to look forward to for what is coming out when the whole Old Testament and, and New Testament are combined as one Orthodox study Bible. And there will be some amendments and, and corrections in the New Testament as well. Now let's get immediately to the book of Romans. Uh, it, is, it is certainly one of the most marvelous books of the New Testament. All of them are marvelous, but this is a special book. And if you will note in your Orthodox study Bible, I'm going I'm to quote uh, from certain notes and so forth here, but I'm on page 335. And you'll note the date of it is something like 55 or 57, somewhere in that range of timing for the time for, uh, for this book having been written by Paul. 
and the theme, God's righteousness revealed in Christ for our salvation. Now, uh, <clears throat> I just amended that slightly to read th uh, when I, Father, Father asked me for a little information on what I'd be speaking about, and I said, God's righteousness in Christ for the unrighteous. For it is we who are unrighteous sinners that are heirs to this uh, wonderful righteousness in Christ. Uh, there are some wonderful statements in the inf background information. That su summary called Dichotomies and Synergies is something very worth reading, and you will understand Romans better if you if you read that passage or that section. But I want to take you to page 336 to a statement. Uh, it's subpoint C uh, uh, where it says Romans is the only letter Paul wrote to a church he had not yet visited. Yes. Okay, all right, we're not in the verses yet, but I'll do that, Robin, I sure will. This is, a, this is a part of the introduction to the book of Romans, and, and there is a statement here. Some have suggested that Romans contains what Paul preached and taught when he visited churches in person. I... I came to that conclusion many years ago in studying and teaching the book of Romans, even while still on the Campus Crusade for Christ's death, uh, because it, uh, it became apparent to me in studying it that this, it, it's very obvious, this is the only book that he wrote to a church he had never visited, but then it occurred to me no apostle had ever visited uh, no, none of the 12 apostles had ever visited the city of Rome at the time that Romans was written. So that makes it even more important. None of the 12 great apostles had ever visited the city of Rome when this book was written. Now, I used to teach, in back in those years as a Protestant, that no apostle had ever visited there. But I found out that I was wrong once I became uh, Orthodox. Let me ask you, how many other apostles did Jesus have besides the 12? Apostles, not disciples. There's a difference between a disciple and an apostle. How many other apostles were there other than the 12? Seven. Yeah, any of you may answer, priest included. That's right, 70, 70. Jesus appointed 70 apostles and sent them out just like he did the 12. But these 70 went out in teams of twos and they went to the towns and villages all around northern Judea especially, but even uh, into, uh, I'm sorry, northern Israel in, and finally into Judea. They went mainly in the Galilean region, but uh, these 70 are kept up with in the Orthodox Church. See, as Protestants, I, sort of, I figured they just sort of vanished off the scene somewhere. But the Orthodox Church still commemorates these 70. 
And in this trusty study guide, here study book that you have, back on page 818, uh, there is a list of the 70 and the references to where they are referred to in Holy Scriptures, also the day that they're commemorated on. There is one thing that's omitted about Jason in the list. They're alphabetically listed. Jason is also mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 21. That's left out of this, this uh, breakdown of the New Testament references. Uh, as to where the 70 are mentioned in the New Testament itself. But uh, the reason that I want to bring up this distinction is because after doing some further research, once we became Orthodox, I found in checking out the list of the 70 and then checking the names in chapter 16. So if you've got your, your, your Bible, just turn to chapter 16 of Romans. If you have the study Bible, it's page 372. And, in, and just to give you an idea of who some of these 70 are and what their names are, if you look at verse 3, you find the Aquila is mentioned there. And then if you go down to verse 5, you see Eponidas is mentioned. In verse 7, Andronicus, and in verse 8, Amplius is mentioned, and then in 9, Urbanus, or Urbanus, and then Stachys in verse 9, and so on through, Apelles in verse 10, and Aristobulus in verse 10, and so forth, and I won't read all of them, but if you looked at the list on page 818, you would find these men listed here, and actually there are 18 of the 70 who were located in Rome at the time he wrote the letter to the Romans. So there were apostles in Rome. And I was wrong when I was teaching that there were no apostles, no apostle had ever been to Rome. It's not true. Of the 70, 18 were presently located in the city of Rome at the time Paul wrote the letter. That's not a small thing. Eighteen of the men that the Lord Jesus Christ himself had chosen and ordained and had trained were in Rome. What does that make you think of the city of Rome? Was it important? Was the church there important? You bet it was. Already, even though none of the twelve had been there yet, Already, that church is being tremendously well catechized. The teachings of the apostles had already begun to be established. But I believe Paul wrote what he would have taught if he had been there in person. These books, uh, these, this book, the book of, of Romans, it's 16 chapters, we've Divided it up into chapters. He didn't divide it into chapters and verses. Just for convenience uh, to be able to look them up. This great book of Romans was undoubtedly what the Apostle Paul taught wherever he went to establish a church. This gives me a tremendous respect for the New Testament church. The depth 
of the book of Romans, in a sense, is immeasurable. Uh, the truths that are expressed in this book, and which we'll only be able to brush over lightly, could occupy years of study and teaching and still not be completely fathomed and plumbed. You could not see, you could not plumb the depths of all that Paul is touching on in this, uh, in this epistle to the Romans. And so it's possible that the Holy Spirit had him, I think probably it's definitely likely, not just possible, that the Holy Spirit had him write what he would normally have taught since no, none of the 12 apostles had yet visited the city so that there would be a universal uh, or uniform catechetical study for the whole church in Rome. So that, they, that there would be a, a good solid foundation on which that church in Rome could be built. And you know, it worked. Because the church in Rome for many centuries was the focus of orthodoxy. Seriously. Father, Father Mark knows this. He used to point this out to us in, at the academy years ago. The, uh, the Roman church was really, for a long time, the bastion of orthodoxy. It was not until it began to drift toward having the pope assume hegemony over the whole church and the pope become uh, the, the one that was the authoritative ruler of the church, the single head of the church. It was when that began to happen, and it happened over several centuries, then, of course, other things happened later after the split between East and West that was uh, sort of formalized in 1054. Uh, but uh, from that point on, then the Orthodox began to consolidate uh, much more solidly into what is truly Orthodox and would not budge from it and Rome began to add things. And of course, the Protestants took things away, and the Orthodox just said, nope, this is what we've always believed, and they held steady. But in, in the ancient centuries, the early centuries of the church, it was Rome that was perhaps the most solid theologically for a long time. And many of the worst heresies arose out of what was, or what is today, Orthodox territory. Uh, and unfortunately, even we of Antioch have to accept a certain amount of responsibility for some of those heresies. Uh, but uh, we can at least attribute to Alexandria the worst of them, and that's Arianism, although one wonders which is the worst, but Arianism is certainly the worst. But the point is, we... We have this book of Romans, this epistle to the Romans, written by St. Paul, that gave them that solid foundation that lasted for such a long time. And I believe today the need for revival among we who are Orthodox needs to be, uh, it needs to be brought back to the forefront. 
the teaching of this book needs to be re-emphasized among us as Orthodox Christians. We need to say this is the book that, in a sense, encapsulates apostolic teaching in its purest, most basic form. And if we're, if we're going to build an Orthodox church in America, that will stand. And as we talked at dinner tonight with uh, Father Philip, we need an Orthodox church in America very badly. And I mean by that a unified or Orthodoxy under a single patriarch of America. And when that happens, someday, and I don't know when it will happen, I, I'm afraid I won't get to be around for that, but when it finally happens, and if we are well catechized, founded on the truths that you find in this book, and founded on the faith that has not been uh, watered down and not been changed through the centuries, then we will see things happen in North America that are beyond anything we can imagine at this present time. I believe there can be a genuine spiritual renewal, provided the Lord sees fit to give us time for that and sees fit to bring that to, uh, to our country and to our world again. Uh, maybe the Lord will just decide it's not worth it. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and ring down the curtain and finish things here. Who knows, that could happen too. But uh, I'm sorry, that was a little facetious. It's always worth it with the Lord. If whatever God decides to do is worth it. And if he decides to send that spiritual renewal, it'll be wonderful. And we will, uh, we, those of who, who are around and alive and participate in it will be filled with joy by it. Uh, but we need to pray for that. We need to pray that God will give us our own patriarchate someday and will allow us to become a unified church that is founded on the truths of the, of the Orthodox faith. And that includes the teachings of the epistle to the Romans. Now, one more thing, and then we launch into the book itself. If you have the Orthodox Study Bible, on page 336, there is an outline given. I'm not going to try to re-outline the book for you. Uh, I even considered doing that and said, no, this is good. This is a good outline. There's no need to try to improve on it. Uh, and so uh, it just gives you an overall picture of what Paul was doing as he developed uh, this epistle. This was certainly his most well thought out and worked out epistle because he was doing it for catechetical purposes, I'm convinced. This was what he taught when he came to a new town or a new city to evangelize and proclaim the gospel. Starts off with a greeting at the very, in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Every verse, of course, is packed, and I will have to skim through most of them if we get anywhere close to the goal we've set out here. But let me just break it down a little bit for you. First, the very first word, the name Paul. How, who, what was his name before he took the name Paul? Saul. Saul, right. Paul means little one. 
So we may get a picture of two things here. One, maybe Paul wasn't a very tall, uh, you know, manly, macho uh, Jewish preacher. He may have been rather short, and some of the descriptions that are made of Paul in some of the early writings of church history seem to indicate he wasn't all that handsome, and uh, he was just a little short fellow who may have been stoop-shouldered. He may have uh, not had a lot of physical attraction to him, and he seems to imply that in some of the statements he makes about himself. But this word Paul probably also speaks of his own humility. Uh, he took this name given to him by the Lord, perhaps, maybe in prayer, who knows, uh, because Jesus did change the name even of the great apostle Peter. You know, he's... he's uh, was the son of Jonah, and he became Peter. Simon, the son of Jonah, became Peter, the rock upon which the church was built, the great first apostle, the first among the apostles. And isn't it interesting that he would have been chosen as first among the twelve when he was just a fisherman, a simple fisherman, had no seminary training, no great education, though certainly Jewish fishermen were well trained in the scriptures. From his childhood, he had been brought up in the scriptures. So it wasn't as though he were, was an ignorant man. He was not an ignorant man. It's just that he had never been to seminary, thank God. <laughs> Paul went to seminary and, they, and got saved anyway. Uh, it, it was, you know, by the hardest that he was saved, but seminary can sometimes so blight your mind that it's very hard to get a seminary graduate saved. Being a little facetious about that, but if you'd sat under some of the seminary professors I have sat under, you'd know that's not a joke. <laughs> it's the reality. I, I, uh, I don't want to get off into that, but anyway... <laughs> Paul spoke of himself in, in a sense, self-deprecating terms. He was the little one. Not the great one, not the mighty one, but the little one. And it spoke of his humility, and just as Christ gave Simon, gave, gave Simon Peter a second name, and James and John he called the sons of thunder, and you know, he had different names for some of the apostles. So Paul got renamed from Saul to Paul. Paul, a bondservant, thulos, a, it means a slave, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. In Paul's day, a thulos is the Greek word for slave or bondservant, had no property rights. He often, they had no names. In a large household, they would just number them. Uh, they had no rights at all. Uh, they lived very, uh, they lived in a, they, in fact, they, if they violated Roman law just by running away after their master had been cruel to them, then the, death, the, the penalty was the death sentence. 
And so many were simply just killed once they were captured. And it was a very, very hard life, a very bitter life for a slave. In fact, I would suggest to you, uh, in the notes in the Orthodox Study Bible, uh, that you look up the reference in Titus 1.1. It's referred to in that very first note at the bottom of the page, on page 337, and read what that says about the bondservant or the slave, and how that in the Old Testament, under Jewish law, a bondservant could be an assistant to the king. It was, it was a very high position, and some of the great, uh, great rulers uh, that were men who had served as slaves to a king and then had been promoted to a place of rulership. Uh, but in the Roman Empire, a slave was not treated in that way. St. Paul took upon himself this humble position of a bond slave of Jesus Christ, not his will to be done, Paul's will, but Christ's will to be done. And his life was lived on that basis, that he lived for the purpose of honoring Christ. So he said, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, and since there were already 18 of the 70 apostles in the city of Rome, they knew what an apostle was. An apostle was someone whom Jesus Christ had chosen and ordained and sent out, <coughs> called by Jesus Christ himself to be sent out as an apostle. And so it was from the apostleship that the episcopate came. You see, we see today our apostles as being uh, the bishops. So the, the bishops are the descendants of the apostles. So Bishop Joseph is your apostle, and when he comes here, you treat him like an apostle, and you feel joyful when he is in your midst because an apostle is with you. And there are greater and lesser apostles, just like there were in the, t the time, thank you, Tom, in the time of Christ and the first century church. Uh, the great apostles being the 12 great apostles, a little bit lesser apostles being the 70, this is the end of sight. And then it says, not only called to be an apostle, and of course the apostles went with a unique authority given to them by God, but separated to the gospel of God. His whole life, he'd separated himself from the world. He'd been separated from his family. We sat this morning, had a wonderful conversation with Father James Bernstein. And we asked him to tell us his life story, which was really very interesting. And uh, if you ever have that opportunity, you need to have him give you the unabridged version. He was going to give us the three-minute version, and we didn't let him. We kept pulling more out of him. But one of the sad side parts of that story was he said, you know, I, I lost my family by becoming a follower of Christ, by becoming a Christian. And, uh, and he talked about uh, how that was the painful part of becoming a Christian and following Christ for him. 
Uh, I didn't exactly lose my family, but I sort of lost them because, as I pointed out that at our breakfast table, uh, I, had, I have six first cousins who are, who are Southern Baptist uh, uh, ministers, and I was uh, also one at one time for 12 and a half years a Southern Baptist pastor, and I am truly the black sheep of the family. Uh, uh, they they find it real hard still to understand what's happened to me somewhere something slipped up here you know and just can't believe that it happened but with father james it was more than just sort of looking at me like i've become weird for him it's losing the family that's been a, a sadness and that happened to paul when he started following christ he'd been a pharisee the Pharisees were in the top echelons of spiritual leadership in Israel. Now he becomes a nobody. Uh, he becomes, he says in the book of Corinthians, we become the, we apostles are the offscouring of the world. Well, that's a kind of a bad word, really. I won't tell you exactly what that means, but it, is, it means we are the bottom of the pile. <laughs> we're the dirt. And so Paul realized that becoming an apostle of Christ was not to be given the key to the city every time you walk in. You weren't even given the key to the jail. <laughs> they, they put him in jail, didn't expect to take him out. And uh, he had many experiences of persecution and suffering and loss because he had become a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Separated from the world, from his family, from all of his previous life to become a servant of the gospel of Christ, which he promised, that is, the gospel was promised by God before through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So the gospel of Christ had been promised, had been prophesied concerning his son. God the Father promised these things through the prophets, in the Holy Scriptures, and the gospel concerns his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. You see, the gospel always has to, has to point out two things about Christ. Not only is he the eternal son of God, but he is also the son of Mary. He is in the lineage of David the great king of Israel, greatly beloved by all Jewish teachers and faithful Jews throughout the centuries. Our Lord Jesus Christ was, according to the flesh, a descendant of King David. And so here we see already in these first three verses both the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. Both natures. He is the only person in all of the history of the universe in all, all time and, and all eternity that has two natures. He, from all eternity past, if we could use those kind of words, but they, they are really inconsistent terms, he was divine and is divine. But in time, he was born of the Virgin Mary, and from her received his humanity. 
So he has both divine nature and human nature. And you cannot teach the truth about Christ without teaching both those truths. And so many today call themselves Christians and deny one or the other. Many, many uh, so-called liberal Christians of our time deny the deity of Christ and will have no part of teaching or believing in a Christ who is truly God, who is God incarnate. But there are many of those who are evangelical Christians and are out crusading for Christ, as some of us have done, and, and they are, in a sense, completely overlooking, if not denying, his humanity. All they ever emphasize is his deity. And you see, the proper orthodox teaching is a balance between the deity and the humanity of Christ. And so, in verse 3, he uh, this, the, we see that the scriptures prophesied and promised that God the Father would send his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is God, of course, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness or the Holy Spirit by the resurrection from the dead. And the note and the, the, the footnote on that verse in the Orthodox Study Bible points out that though the resurrection declared Christ to be the Son of God, it did not make him the Son of God. He was the Son of God by nature. From his divine, eternal divine nature, by nature he was the Son of God. But he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Holy Spirit or by the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, that is through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. Now, the actual word there is the word Athenos, which means, uh, I'm sorry, ethnis, ethnos, and it is the word for Gentile. So he is, uh, he is, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And the word Gentile simply means all nations. People of all nations, people of all races, people of all cultures people of all tongues, languages. Christ came to save all humankind, all mankind, no matter what our background, no matter what our ethnic background, that's what the word in Greek means, as, from which we derive the word ethnic. It does not matter what our background is, he came to be our Lord and our Savior. And he loves us, he loves us all. And uh, one of the little songs we teach our children, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. It's true, isn't it? That's what we believe. This is the truth of the gospel. 
And so we have this marvelous truth set forth here in this verse. Christ or gave Paul and all who follow Christ a grace, but with Paul he received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the Gentiles or all nations for his name. Now, obedience to the faith is another very important phrase. He did not come to simply uh, say some nice things and we uh, have uh, a nice response to that, but then forget it and go home and watch television. He came that we might obey that word that he has given to us, that we obey the, the gospel that's being preached to us. And so obedience is a very important part of the faith. You cannot separate true faith from obedience. If it's true faith, it, it, it implies obedience. And so it is, in a sense, the obedience that comes out of faith. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, speaking to the people at Rome, but to anybody who reads the letters as, as uh, far as that is concerned. To all who are in Rome, believe, beloved of God, called to be saints, uh, you say, wait a minute, does that mean all of us are called to be saints? Yes, yes, we're all called to be saints. Uh, of course, the word saints means holy ones, and so we're all called to be holy. It's God's plan that we all be holy. When, when uh, Metropolitan Philip was bringing us in church by church, he had been first to... Uh, uh, that St. Michael's Church in Van Nuys, California, and I flew out there and was ordained, uh, chrismated and ordained as a deacon in Van Nuys. And then the next week, he went on to St. Nicholas in Los Angeles, and some of, I, I guess several of you were ordained there in, at St. Nicholas in Los Angeles. I was not there for that. I went back to Franklin, Tennessee, and waited for two weeks until the Metropolitan got to Franklin. <clears throat> and then on the on the February twenty-first, on a Saturday, when he came and held the first service and chrismated the people, he finished my ordination, uh, ordaining me to the priesthood that day. But uh, I met with him before that day when he came into town and we took him to the hotel and I said uh, your eminence, you know, the question has come up among our people, do we need to all try to take uh, a saint's name? And uh, he said, no. He says, it's too late. We don't have time to go through that process. And I said, well, you know, I, my name, Gordon, as far as I know, there's no Saint Gordon anywhere. What do, what do we do for those of us who have uh, a name that's not, uh, that, it, that we use all the time. My middle name is Thomas, whom I take to be my saint, but I used to, what, what do we do if our name is not a saint's name? He says, then make it one. <laughs> and I've, I've thought about that hundreds of times since then. 
that, that's, that's the call that we all have. Every single one of us. You may have a name that's a pagan name. Then make it a saint's name. He even went on to say, many of the names he says that we venerate now as saints' names were at one time pagan names. And it's true. You go back and study the early church history. Some of those people that got sainted by the church, their names certainly were not Christian names at all and have some rather bad connotations to some of them. But they got sainted, you see. They, those names were redeemed and reclaimed for the kingdom of God, which is the whole purpose of salvation, to take sinners like all of us here tonight and change us into saints. That's what God is after. And every one of us is called to be a saint. So we're in the business of becoming what we already are, you see. That's what salvation is all about, becoming what you already are in Christ. And so, grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, from, our, from God, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just quickly, grace and peace. Notice what comes first, grace. Then peace. Until you've experienced the grace of God, you cannot experience the peace of God. I'd like to change the, the words a little just to try to get a point across to you. Electricity and light to all of you. Suppose they went out here on Eagle River, I don't know how big Eagle River is, and built a dam and uh, put a power plant on it, built up the city of Eagle River, but so far there's been no connection with the power plant and the houses that have been built. But they put lights in the houses and they put all the, uh, you know, all, all, all the various utility, I mean, everything in, the washers, dryers, ele electrical implements and so forth. And then once they get the power plant up and ready to go, the owners of the plant get a big megaphone and they shout out from one of the mountaintops down to Eagle River, electricity and light to you in Eagle River. Is that going to make the lights come on in your house? No way. I think a lot of us who were Protestant used to do that kind of thing. We had an idea that grace and peace just floats through the ether, through the air. Somehow it gets to you just sort of automatically, you know. I mean, no connection, no real connection, just sort of comes down from somewhere and enters in maybe right above my left ear or someplace. The church has always taught that there are the electric lines, so to speak, the connection to the power plant, are what? Baptism, Eucharist, marriage, all of these things we call sacraments. And the Orthodox Church doesn't limit it to seven. We say all of life is, is sacramental. We believe that God works through all kinds of things in life. So in a sense, the Protestants have a point, and that is that grace is not limited to baptism and the Eucharist, but their 
they lose their point by not having anything that is a means of grace. Just sort of have this sort of belief, this vague belief in your mind and in your heart, and that's all that will bring grace to you. Now, I want to quickly say that I do believe that grace, I, that, that grace does come to people who don't get baptized. I believe God in his, his great mercy has ways of conveying saving grace into people's lives without going through, let's say, the mechanics of water baptism. I mean, the thief on the cross did not get baptized in water. The church fathers have mentioned he got baptized in his blood, and in fact, there were several saints like that that never had a chance to be baptized in water. So God is not limited to a particular, to the particular uh, outward manifestations of of a sacrament. He can convey grace to us in many, many ways. God is not limited. But we receive grace through the sacraments. That's clearly taught in the scriptures. The sacrament of baptism, the sacrament of the Eucharist, and all the other great sacraments of the church that are so important to us, plus all the other sacraments. I mean, to me, uh, sitting out on this deck over here this morning and looking up at the mountains and the beauty of the day was a sacramental experience. I, just, I felt blessed by the mercy and grace of God just being there. Being in your presence and fellowshipping with you is, is an experience of grace for those of us who love one another and love the Lord. It, it, does, it does bring grace into our lives to be touched uh, by one another in fellowship and the study of his word and all kinds of things bring grace into our lives. But there are certain primary means of grace and then there may be what could be called secondary means of grace. And then God is not limited to anything. He is, after all, the sovereign God of the universe. So he's not limited. By our, by our understanding of the sacraments. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Notice he's praying for them, and to pray for someone, you have to pray for them in a sense by name, and at the end of the book, he lists all those names, more than 35 names as I recall, and in chapter 16, Paul had prayer lists. We know what those prayer lists were called. They were called diptychs. And he, uh, the diptych in the early church was the list that you prayed for. And they were made by taking a board, covering it with wax, and then writing the name into that wax. And you know those diptychs have lasted. Their archaeologists have dug up diptychs that go all the way back to those early centuries of the church. 
as long as they don't get burned, get in a hot fire, those diptychs are almost indestructible. And so the names were on there. The one thing you could do to erase it was to take a hot iron or something and erase somebody's name. And you did not want your name taken out of the diptychs. That, that meant you'd been excommunicated, you see. Bad news. So Paul had his own diptychs and where he prayed for these people even though he'd never been to Rome, he prayed for them. And he prayed for them continuously. And he, he carried his diptychs around, I'm sure, in some kind of a knapsack or something, and traveled with them and prayed for those that were on the diptych. And he, he spoke about their faith being spoken of throughout the whole world. Well, the whole civilized world, the Roman world of that time, the witness of these Roman Christians had gone out far, had gone far and wide. And then he said, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Paul catches himself in mid-sentence, and you notice there's a sort of a hyphen there. And he says, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to do something to help establish you, but, he says, I also want to be established. I need to, we, are, we will be mutually encouraged. Your faith encourages me, and my faith encourages you. And that's what Christian fellowship is all about. We encourage one another in the faith. Now, I do not. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. Paul had wanted to go to Rome long before he got there. And how did he finally get there, by the way? In handcuffs. You know, I mean, he literally was taken there in chains as a Roman prisoner. But I was okay with Paul. I mean, they changed the guard, what, every six hours or whatever, and all, had a new soldier chained to him. And that was just fresh meat for Paul. I mean, he, he had new opportunity to witness to somebody about Jesus Christ. And a lot of those men got converted. And, a lot, and later he writes about all the believers in Caesar's household. Because little by little the Christians infiltrated the whole culture and society of the city of Rome. And that's the way it ought to be. And so he says, I'd planned to get there before now, but I've been hindered. When you study the life of Paul, and, and Father Peter, I'm sure, will help bring this out to us when he teaches uh, beginning tomorrow, that the, the, uh, what happened is that Paul couldn't get to Rome because he was so busy evangelizing in the eastern part of the empire, and the Holy Spirit had not given him freedom to go to the western part of the empire. And then he says, I, I, I long to come to you that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. You see, Paul was primarily a preacher to the Gentiles. He was a missionary to the Gentiles. He wanted to see people of all nations come to Christ. That was his great desire. 
I am debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians. <clears throat> the Greeks were those who had, the, who had the Greek culture and the Greek language, and Paul was writing in the Greek language, actually dictating it, and it was being transcribed in, in Greek. And the barbarians were folks who didn't speak Greek. They were the, the pagan folks that were just totally uncultured and unlearned. And Paul says, I love them too. They are people that Christ died for, and I am a debtor to them. What, what debt did he owe them? I mean, they had never, he had never borrowed money from them. He didn't owe them a repayment of money. He owed them only the debt of love, which is the same debt we all have, the debt of love, to love those that Christ died for. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, to be ready to die even for the cause of Christ, because going to Rome pretty well meant you were ready to die for Christ. And so I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For it, in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And these verses, are, these two verses are summarized his theme for the book of Romans, but also he is quoting a verse out of the Old Testament that is the most internally quoted verse in all of the, uh, the New Testament from the Old Testament. The just shall live by faith. And so <clears throat> here is this marvelous statement that becomes the theme of St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, but which is the foundation stone of the gospel of Christ. Just quickly, and we'll close here for our take our break. He said that he, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He was willing even to die for it, even though it was not always easy to speak up for Christ. You may find that true in your, your workplace. It's not easy to speak for Christ uh, where you live or where you work. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It amazes me, the power of the gospel, to bring people to Christ. It, when they hear the gospel of Christ presented, how it draws them in some almost a magnetic way. And you never know who's going to be drawn and who doesn't seem to be drawn, who's not ready to hear yet. For the Jew first and also to, it, for it, I'm sorry, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He is saying for all people, whether they be of a religious background or in that case the Greeks were known for their sort of pagan worship of the various gods, uh, their idolatry and so forth. And, and Paul says it doesn't matter who it is. The gospel is for all these people, for it is... For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. You receive it in faith and you grow in faith. Your faith starts 
tiny and it gets a little bigger and a little bigger till it gets to be the size of a grain of mustard seed. <laughs> and if it gets that big, you're really in good shape. Some of us, it takes a magnifying glass, a spiritual magnifying glass to find it. Maybe even a microscope to find mine sometimes. And so he, he then states his case that the just, those who are righteous in God's sight, actually live by faith. Faith is not just a way of becoming justified. It is a way of living. We're going to stop here, take a break, and then... Uh, we come back after a very short break of only eight minutes. Really, is that right, Father Mark? Eight minutes, and then we'll, we'll, we'll really hit the ground running, okay? <laughs>